Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the March 2023 Literature Review Series. In our featured article sections, uh, we highlight five that stood out above the rest, then discuss articles focusing on sepsis, heme, and infectious diseases before closing out with our pharmacist-featured articles in the front of the fridge. Now, a couple housekeeping points before we get going today. So I'll be at Empower Rx in Austin, Texas, less than a week from when this episode gets released. That's the Emergency Medicine Pharmacotherapy with Resuscitation Conference, the one that was highlighted with Megan Reck, um, talking about all the great opportunities and things for pharmacists, and especially emergency medicine pharmacists. So if you're going to be there, let me know, reach out. We'd love to say hey and meet up with as many people as possible. And if you are wondering, don't worry. Of course, we're going to have a conference recap, uh, more to come on what that's going to look like. Um, But award season is also coming. So be thinking of who you might want to nominate. So there's going to be more to come here in May, uh, in mid to end of May, but a couple things. So you're going to kind of submit nominations from a Google form. Hand up, there will be no CVs. No CVs required. Um, it's not going to be a massive. I think a lot of times with awards, it's intimidating because it's it takes so much to even just nominate somebody. And then it's like you feel like sometimes you're nominating and a chance that, you know, against all these legends and things, this is going to be an easy process to try to get as many nominations as possible. And then you all, the listeners are going to vote. So it's going to be as collaborative, easy, and awesome as we can. And this should be a whole lot of fun. So be thinking of that. And then lastly, the April Literature Review series will feature articles chosen by you, the listener. So we're going to have voting on social media uh, for which pharmacist-driven or featured articles that we'll cover on here. So if you're not following me, go ahead and do so. Twitter and Instagram, at Pharmacy to Dose, T-O to Dose. That's where you'll get to vote on the pharmacist-featured articles that I'll get to talk about. And that's where, hey, if your article got published, right, toss it in. That's where we'll be able to get recognition because I promise I try, but I know that I'm not able to capture every article that's published. So hopefully we'll be able to get, uh, make sure that the ones I'm talking about are the ones that you all want to hear as well. And if you're not following me on social media, then you've been missing my trial of the day. That's right. Started a new thing in May where there's 60 second clips highlighting articles that were published on this date in medical history or just landmark critical care or emergency medicine articles. So at pharmacy to dose, Give us a follow. This is a great episode, so I think it's time to get rolling. So thankful to be joined by Brent Tucker as the guest host for the March Literature Review series. Now, Brent is currently a PGY2 critical care resident at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center, and post-residency, he's happy to announce he's staying in Texas as he accepted a critical care clinical specialist position at Houston Methodist in Baytown. Find Brent on Twitter at BTuckFarmD. Hey, Brent, welcome. I appreciate you joining me today. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you for that introduction. Longtime listener of the podcast. Definitely excited to be a guest today. Oh, I appreciate your support. That means a lot. Um, Now, I got to ask, you're staying in Texas. So let the listeners know, 
Do you have A, a cowboy hat, B, a cowboy boots, or C, all the above? I actually have none of those as being originally from Pennsylvania. They haven't, they have gotten me down to the rodeo. So I've been there multiple times, <laughs> but they don't have me in that cowboy hat or boots yet, but just probably give it some time. Yeah. What do you think if you had to guess boots or hat? I'm definitely going boots. I kind of like the boots. Yeah. They're growing on me. Yeah. I mean, the problem is the hat is cheaper, but you're going to use it less. Whereas the boots are awesome. I love when you have people that come from Texas and like they're, they're either residents or they're new attendings and you always know because you hear their cowboy boots, you hear that click. I always think that's great. Um, and then Brent, the other, the other big news was, so not only are you casually just getting a post-residency job, finishing your postgraduate training, but you're also getting married. Yes, yes. Very busy time in July uh, upcoming this year. You know, you might as well just like rip it off with a bandaid, right? Just get all of it done at once. But what better way to like relax and truly like enjoy the the honeymoon period than being done with residency, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, certainly backloaded the end of this residency with a little bit of stress in planning a wedding, but we're almost through it. Survive in advance. It's like March Madness. You got it. Um, but the reason we're here today the March Literature Review Series. And as always, we got to start off with our featured articles. And we have five top five, top five, top five to review today. Now we're going to start off, uh, Brent's going to lead off for us, um, talking about a trial looking at neurologic recovery post-cardiac arrest. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So for my first featured article, we'll discuss a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Duration of Device-Based Fever Prevention After Cardiac Arrest. And as we know, fevers associated with worse neurological outcomes following cardiac arrest. And the 2022 European guidelines recommend active fever prevention for 72 hours in comatose post-cardiac arrest patients. And the AHA guidelines say it's reasonable to actively prevent fever, but they acknowledge the lack of evidence to support a specific duration. And the recommendation in the European guidelines for 72 hours was first introduced in 2005, based solely on three observational studies containing a total of 212 patients showing increased morbidity and mortality with hyperthermia. And the theory behind the fever prevention is to limit reperfusion injury and reduce hypoxic ischemic brain injury. Despite the lower quality of evidence for this, the most recent targeted temperature management or TTM trials have included 72 hours of fever prevention in the intervention and control groups. So there remains an overall lack of data evaluating the optimal duration of fever prevention following cardiac arrest. The objective of this trial was to compare 36 hours of device-based fever prevention with 72 hours of device-based fever prevention in post-cardiac arrest comatose patients. This was an open-label randomized control trial in two Danish centers from March 2017 through December 2021. They included adult patients resuscitated after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest from a presumed cardiac cause who were comatose upon admission. Key exclusion criteria included unwitnessed asystole, suspected acute intracranial bleeding, and stroke. Patients in both groups received device-based TTM at 36 degrees for 24 hours. The short-duration group received active fever prevention for 36 hours, and the longer-duration group received active fever prevention 72 hours post-arrest. 789 patients were included in this study. Groups were well-balanced at baseline and Patients primarily had shockable rhythms and a high percentage received bystander CPR. Time to ROSC was about 20 minutes and about 50% of patients underwent a PCI upon admission. Patients also had similar median body temperatures at baseline. The primary outcome was the composite death from any cause or discharge from the hospital with a cerebral performance category of three or four, which represents severe disability, coma, or vegetative state within 90 days. There was no significant difference between the two groups. About 32% experienced the composite outcome in the 36-hour group, and about 34% experienced the composite outcome in the 72-hour group. There were similar rates of mortality at 90 days between the groups, 
And as would be expected in the 36-hour group, there was a higher percentage of patients with temps above 37.7 degrees Celsius and above 38.5 degrees Celsius after their fever prevention ended. And there was also no difference in modified Rankin or Montreal cognitive assessment scores between groups and no difference in adverse events. There are a couple notable limitations to this trial. It was unblinded and despite fever-based or device-based prevention, a high percentage of patients in the 72-hour group still experienced fever. There was also some reduced follow-up due to COVID. Thinking about how this applies to practice, it's the first randomized control trial to assess the optimal duration of active fever prevention. Given the lack of good evidence to support the current 72-hour duration, I would think it's reasonable to use a shorter duration of 36 hours of active fever prevention based on the results of this trial. My only concern is the high percentage of patients in the 72-hour group who still had fevers despite active prevention, potentially not allowing us to see a difference between the groups. Additionally, based on the TTM2 trial, some patients are no longer receiving 24 hours of TTM and are only receiving fever prevention. So it's tough to discern how the results of this trial would apply to patients not undergoing any TTM. So with all the debate surrounding the utility of TTM in this patient population, what do you think this means for our practice, Nick? Yeah, Brent, you brought up some really good points. It's kind of a little hard to interpret. Um, You mentioned the percent of patients who had a fever in the kind of 72-hour control group. Uh, The listeners, if you have the article in front of you, it's figure one kind of visually shows you that. Um, Yeah, Brett, my kind of takeaway is I think this is another study that is really challenging our preconceived notions of temperature management post-cardiac arrest and the effects of that. And so, like you said, we've kind of always done fever prevention for 72 hours because that's what the first one to two studies did. And so um, a couple other kind of um, points, I guess I wanted to to point out from the trial. So this was a predefined subordinate intervention from the much larger blood pressure and oxygen targets in post-resuscitation care trials. So really big data set. Now, 85% of these patients had a shockable rhythm with bystander CPR. So external validity is a question that comes to my mind. Um, I don't know if that necessarily translates all the way here, but limitations aside, and, you know, we point out that the, the group had a little bit more of a fever, you know, we're saying from the graph, it looks to about, you know, 20 to 30% of patients had a, had a fever at some point. It's probably easier said than done to truly prevent 100% of fevers, right? We're kind of Monday morning quarterbacking a little bit here. I'm, I'm thinking the same thing, but I'm trying to, uh, I want to see the side of the research and understand, right? Like if it was easy, if we were able to prevent all fevers post-cardiac arrest, we'd probably be doing it. And so I think this is a really well done study and kind of puts into question, I mean, I don't know what to make of this because a lot of people, like you said, all we're doing is fever prevention and not necessarily TTM at all. So The short answer is, I don't know, Brent. Um, We'll have to have some smarter people kind of weigh in on it, but I'll be, I'll be curious what comes and what TTM looks like in the, in the next few years here. Um, So uh, actually we're going to stick with you, Brent, you're going to go back to back here. So why don't you uh, hit us with your next article? Yeah, absolutely. For a next featured article, we will transition away from cardiac arrest and into the controversial world of corticosteroids and septic shock, and we'll discuss a retrospective study published in JAMA titled Comparative Effectiveness of Flugicortisone and Hydrocortisone versus Hydrocortisone Alone Among Patients with Septic Shock. The surviving sepsis campaign guidelines give a weak recommendation with a moderate quality of evidence to add corticosteroid therapy in patients requiring ongoing support with vasopressors. They recommend hydrocortisone, 200 milligrams per day, as corticosteroid monotherapy and give no recommendation for flugicortisone. However, both hydrocortisone and flugicortisone have been assessed in a handful of randomized control trials. One of the first of these was the 2002 French study, which found a mortality benefit of hydrocortisone and flugicortisone compared to placebo. However, the subsequent Corticus trial published 
afterwards found no mortality benefit of hydrocortisone alone versus placebo. And then in 2018, the adrenal trial found no mortality benefit of hydrocortisone alone versus placebo. And then also in 2018, the approaches trial found a mortality benefit of hydrocortisone and flugocortisone compared to placebo. So overall, we have a mix of positive and negative trials. So following the approaches trial, the authors performed this study to assess the comparative effectiveness of hydrocortisone and flugocortisone versus hydrocortisone alone in patients with septic shock. This was a retrospective observational study of data from the Premier Healthcare Claims Database. They included hospitalized patients with septic shock receiving norepinephrine who started hydrocortisone within three days of hospital admission. Patients were included in the hydrocortisone flugocortisone group if they received flugocortisone on the same calendar day as they started hydrocortisone. The primary outcome was the composite of hospital mortality or discharge to hospice care. There were about 86,000 patients in the hydrocortisone group and about 2,300 patients in the hydrocortisone flugocortisone group. The composite of hospital mortality or discharge to hospice occurred in about 50% of the patients in the hydrocortisone alone group and about 47% of patients in the hydrocortisone and flugocortisone group, which was a statistically significant difference. Some secondary outcomes were also significant, including increased vasopressor-free days, increased hospital-free days, and decreased shock duration all in the hydrocortisone and flugocortisone group. There were similar rates of hypernatremia and healthcare-associated infection between the groups. This paper has many strengths in that it was a very well-constructed retrospective study with a large patient population that covered the whole nation through the claims database and contained a robust statistical analysis that assessed numerous potential confounding variables However, some notable limitations include, of course, the retrospective nature of the study and the potential for residual confounding. For example, there was no evaluation of vasopressor dosage because it was not available in the database. There was also a large separation in survival between the two groups starting on day zero. This could indicate that the, the difference in survival in the two groups could have been present at baseline and might not be related to the corticosteroids at all. Currently at my institution, we don't routinely use flugocortisone in septic shock. However, this paper has certainly generated some chatter, but I don't personally view it as or this retrospective study as practice changing. However, it certainly piques my interest. I think it ultimately calls for a large randomized control trial to assess hydrocortisone plus flugocortisone versus hydrocortisone alone in septic shock. So what do you think, Nick? Have you seen any changes to practice at your institution? This is a fascinating question because I've always asked this too. And the the answer that that I've gotten from, from others is a pharmacokinetic study showing that in about 21 patients, a third of them had undetectable fludrocortisone levels after an oral dose and, and things. But, you know, there's just more and more. Now let's talking a little bit about the the study itself. So it is retrospective, but the authors did what they called a target trial emulation. So they knew they had retrospective data and to try to account for the known limitations with that, they kind of did it in the, they designed the study in this way. So, you know, they're trying their best to account for those limitations. Um, Brent, like you had mentioned. Now, one thing that stood out to me in this massive group of, of patients the combination group was 0.6% of septic shock patients. So I don't know. I It's going to be hard to know without a, to me, like an RCT or something of that of that nature. Now, um, if you're asking me, do I recommend flugicortisone? Mm, not really. But if someone feels strongly about it, am I dying on that hill? Mm, not really. So I think it's fine. I think we've, we've shown... It doesn't hurt either, right? There's not big adverse effects that they've seen with it. Um, so interesting. Um, man, there's a there's a really good editorial by um, Anon, who uh, was the lead author in a lot of these studies that had flugicortisone. It's literally called Why My Steroid Trials and Septic Shock Were Quote-Unquote Positive. 
Um, I'll put that in the reference list. It's a good read. I'm not going to go into it for time's sake, um, but it's good. The other thing I love about this, Brent, I don't know if you noticed, I love a good database study that lets me know what type of insurance these patients had, because that is at the forefront of my mind when I'm thinking of all these things. You can always tell it's a database study. So I, I always got to kind of chuckle about that. Um, wow. Those are two awesome kind of lead off studies here. Um, let's stay in the sepsis and septic shock category and, um, highlight a paper that was published ahead of print in critical care, focusing on what I consider to be a last line kind of band-aid treatment. Now, reminder, methylene blue, it inhibits the vasodilatory effect of nitric oxide, which would of course be a benefit in distributive shock. Now, This study, it talks about two RCTs um, looking at methylene blue published in 2001 and 2002. So the 2001 study showed that methylene blue improved MAP requirements and reduced vasopressor requirements, but no difference in clinical outcomes. In the second study, the primary outcome was actually reduction of cytokines. But then they also did secondary analysis looking at if they gave methylene blue, did MAPs improve and things. They also included patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. So it's really hard to interpret these things. And if you look at the dosing, it's all over the place. Like one did a bolus, one did a four-hour infusion, one did a bolus and then an infusion and you titrate it up. You know, a lot goes into that. Now, in both of these trials, the MAP effects were short-lived. Thus, me, I kind of think of it as a Band-Aid, right? But then come in this open access article entitled Early Adjunctive Methylene Blue in Patients with Septic Shock, an RCT. So um, this is done in a mixed med surge ICU in Mexico. Now, the patients had septic shock according to the sepsis three criteria, and um, they had kind of a fixed dose. They gave all their patients 100 milligrams of methylene blue over six hours, but then they did it daily for three days. We're going to come back to that. Now, when they, the, the authors talk about the average dose, it was 1.2 mgs per kg per day of methylene blue in case you kind of do weight-based. Now, they also note that all the other septic shock standards of care were followed. Adjunctive vasopressin, corticosteroids. They do dynamic tests to see fluid responsiveness. Um, and their primary outcome uh, was time to vasopressor discontinuation. And they called that, they, they determined that was when you were off vasopressors for at least 48 hours. So 91 patients were actually randomized. They had similar baseline characteristics. And when you look at the, the characteristics themselves, they're kind of sick, right? Their average lactate's five to six, 80 to 90% of them on the ventilator. Their mean norepidose was about 0.4 mics per kilo per minute. So, you know, uh, definitely septic shock, high mortality range here, right? And what the authors found was that methylene blue significantly reduced the time to vasopressor continuation uh, by 29 hours, but after the second dose, it also reduced the infusion rate of norepi. And then it also showed things like improved outcomes of cumulative fluid balance, shorter ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay. Now, one big, big note, they excluded those with a high probability of death within 48 hours. So to me, when I'm thinking of methylene blue and using it, I'm thinking exclusively in that group, right? Who I think you may, you may die in 48 hours. So if you excluded that and we included all comers, I would be curious the results if you included the sickest of the sick that we would probably push for this too if you were in the methylene blue camp. Now, um, they also noted that no other vasopressors or inotropes were used. They used norepinephrine and vasopressin, and that's it. And then, the, these eight, then they got the placebo or methylene blue. Now, this was like a really, really well-designed, very well-done study, and I have two big thoughts afterwards. So I agree with the authors, maybe methylene blue does have a role for use earlier in septic shock. Um, I think that a lot of times when we think about it, um, maybe it's too late, right, that we've already missed the window when we're thinking about it. But the second point, and this is my big takeaway I think this is a huge argument for multimodal vasopressors, right? This center exclusively uses norepinephrine and vasopressin, and adding a different agent made significant changes. Now, I'm not sure I chalk all this up to methylene blue. I mean, it could be, right? We have a few, a few positive trials. 
And I mentioned the patients in this study received methylene blue daily for three days. You know, this is the first regimen I've seen with scheduled daily doses of methylene blue. I'm used to kind of, you know, one and done. Um, and the authors then noted, right, I mentioned this in the beginning, that the norepinephrine infusion rate didn't actually get significantly reduced compared to placebo until after that second dose. So is that the methylene blue? The authors argue yes, and their argument is a longer inhibition of nitric oxide, right? That three days of therapy versus one day contributed to these positive results. So something to maybe keep in mind for future future research ideas. Um, and the other thing that, that stood out that I thought was um, just humorous is the most common adverse effect after three days of methylene blue, you guessed it, 93% of patients had green, blue tinged urine. Um, so that was probably a sight, depending on how many of them were, were, were on this at the same time, going through the ICU, seeing all those, all those, uh, bags with discolored urine. Um, but a, a awesome study, um, three great ones to start off and, uh, Brent, go ahead and lead us away. Um, looking into a huge question as it relates to the management of acute ischemic stroke. Yeah, absolutely. So for my last featured article, we will venture into the neuro world and review another JAMA publication titled Intravenous Thrombolysis with Patients with Ischemic Stroke and Recent Ingestion of Direct Oral Anticoagulants. DOACs, as we know, are some of our primary agents for stroke prevention in patients with atrial fibrillation, and their use is increasing in a variety of other indications. AHA and European guidelines recommend avoiding IV thrombolytics in acute ischemic stroke patients with DOAC use within the last 48 hours. However, this can be challenging to confirm in patients unable to clearly communicate, and confirmatory labs are not readily available at a lot of institutions. Also, the 48-hour cutoff is made due to the presumed risk of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. However, data to support this recommendation overall is lacking. The authors performed this study to assess the risk of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage in acute ischemic stroke patients receiving thrombolytics with recent DOAC ingestion. They also wanted to evaluate the safety of different selection strategies. These strategies include DOAC-level laboratory testing, DOAC reversal prior to IV thrombolytics, no DOAC-level measurement or reversal, and IV thrombolytic use without knowledge of previous DOAC ingestion. This was an international multi-center retrospective cohort study performed in 64 centers in Europe, Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. They included adult patients with acute ischemic stroke that had confirmed ingestion of a DOAC within 48 hours and received IV thrombolytic therapy with ultaplace or tenecteplase with or without thrombectomy. They compared this group of adult patients to acute ischemic stroke patients who received IV thrombolytics and did not receive any oral anticoagulation. The primary outcome was symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage within 36 hours, defined as worsening NIH SS score increased by four or more. They included over 800 patients in the DOAC group and over 32,000 patients in the no anticoagulation group. There were differences in baseline characteristics for a multitude of variables, but notably, the DOAC group had a higher NIH SS score and higher rate of large vessel occlusion. For the selection subgroups, about 43% of patients had no DOAC levels and no reversal. About 30% had reversal, reversal, and notably, all of these patients received dabigatran, and about 27% had DOAC levels obtained. For the primary outcome, the DOAC group had lower rates of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage at 2.5% compared to 4.1% with an adjusted odds ratio of 0.57 favoring the DOAC group. And there were similar results uh, seen in the different selection groups. For the secondary outcomes, there was no difference in the occurrence of any ICH and uh, higher odds of functional independence and higher rate of mortality in the DOAC group. This study had many strengths 
in that it was a well-designed and well-executed and includes a large number of patients and assesses a variety of safety selection groups. They also performed robust statistical analyses to account for a lot of those baseline differences I mentioned. Important limitations include the potential for selection bias in that providers may have only given IV thrombolytics to patients perceived to have a low risk for symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage, such as earlier in the treatment window or patients with less severe white matter hyperintensities. Also, 41% of these patients were on dabigatran, which might not be as applicable to our population here in the U.S. Right now at my institution, DOAC use is primarily evaluated through patient and family history, as well as medication fill records. We do not routinely order anti-10A levels, and our patients are managed typically on a case-by-case basis with a risk-benefit evaluation for IV thrombolytic use if they've ingested a DOAC within the last 48 hours. This retrospective study overall does not support the current guideline recommendations that exist to avoid IV thrombolytics in patients with recent DOAC ingestion within 48 hours, regardless of the safety selection used. Uh, Despite how well executed this study was, a prospective randomized control trial is likely needed before I would routinely recommend IV thrombolytics for this patient population. However, these results do seem to support a case-by-case use of IV thrombolytics for some patients that have recent ingestion of DOACs. This is a really interesting study, Nick. Uh, have you seen any changes at your institution? No, my institution kind of handles it like like yours does, like you described. Now, my question, how do you confirm DOAC use at your institution? You mentioned you don't routinely do it, but is there a way you can? Yeah, we have checked uh, in an anti-10A level before. As of now, our assays are only really validated for uh, noxaparin and heparin. However, we have used one of those to try to check for presence of a DOAC, but not something that we do on a regular basis because it takes us some time typically to get those results back. Yeah, that's the biggest issue is those those confirmatory things with those DOACs, unless you're at you know one of the really big hospitals across the country, it doesn't come back in as timely of a fashion um, a lot of times. So that can make it a little tough. Now, um, some things that stood out before, like kind of talk about takeaways to me, only 20% of the patients used a Pixaban, right? So we think of standard of care. I think we'd probably, that'd probably be closer to 60 to 70 here. So that's one big thing. Um, and then, you know, you had mentioned thinking of trying to do, trying to give um, thrombolysis to patients with a low risk of ICH. Looking at what the the study itself and the high amount of those patients who took DOACs and got thrombolysis with it, a lot of them almost double the rate of thrombectomy. So to me, it would make sense that they might be a little more aggressive in that group if they think they have a really, like they have an LVO, something they could really get. I think that when you're trying to do risk benefit, that's that case by case basis. So it's a little tough. Um, I mean, the other thing that stands out when you look at the baseline data, right, those coagulation labs in both of the groups, a lot of the standard coagulation labs look stone cold normal in the group that took DOAX. So showing to me the limitations of all those standard ones. Um, the last thing I did not know that there was like a decent amount of literature supporting reversing dabigatran with idarucizumab to facilitate thrombolysis in acute ischemic stroke. So today I learned that was kind of a fun fact, but you said it. I think it's going to be a case-by-case basis, and until we have prospective randomized, I think the risk just in the abundance of cases doesn't outweigh the benefit. Closing out the featured articles in our top five, the uh, next article is uh, published in AJHP, and it is a who's who of neurocritical care pharmacists. And it's actually a review on the use of hypertonic saline for cerebral edema treatment. Now, for history buffs, actually, the article describes when hypertonic saline was first reported for cerebral edema. Now, I'm not going to give the answer away, but hint. We've been using it for over a century. 
And articles like this are amazing too because they are a gold mine of references. Like this is one of those, you know, tuck away and if you're doing research or, or um, having a presentation, this can give you a lot of really good references, awesome articles like this. And the reason this article to me is so much different than a lot because a review on hypertonic saline for cerebral edema is not novel, right? You, you could search and you're going to see tons and tons of them, but this is a review by pharmacists for pharmacists. So they go into the different formulations, the pros and cons of bolus versus infusion, central versus peripheral. And honestly, the section that I probably learned the most or was surprised at how much I learned was in the state safe storage and handling section. So if you're, if you're involved in those administration operational initiatives, um, probably be helpful for you as well. And I think, you know, Aaron Cook is the lead author on the cerebral edema treatment guidelines, and he's the senior author on this review. And when he came on the pod to talk about the guidelines, one of his big takeaways was he emphasized that the data is so weak for most of what we do in the neurocritical care patients. Now, that being said, they still took all of that helped us out, compiled all the research we have, put it in one place. So five out of five stars, definitely something for everyone to go read. Um, A really awesome way to end. Five out of five stars, top five. Everything's looking up here. So Brent, go ahead and take the lead, um, talking in our next section about a disease state that sometimes leaves our patients feeling a little bit under pressure. And let's talk all things sepsis. So go ahead and take it away. Yeah, we'll jump right back into septic shock and discuss a paper published in CHESS titled How We Escalate Vasopressor and Corticosteroid Therapy in Patients with Septic Shock. This is a case-based discussion written by three physicians in CHESS that combines data and anecdotal experience to answer common clinical questions for patients with septic shock, which have limited high-quality data to guide decision-making. I've selected three points to highlight briefly from this paper. First, they discuss the growing evidence supporting the peripheral administration of vasoactive agents at low doses for short duration. Second, the authors provide suggestions for the initiation of a second vasopressor based on the dose of norepinephrine and the patient's comorbidities. Last, they discuss vasopressor weaning strategies, including selecting which presser to stop first, lowering the MAP goal to 60, and adding Minadrin. Overall, the paper provides an interesting discussion of common questions for managing patients with septic shock and is definitely worth a read. Actually, right now at our institution, we're currently revamping our peripheral vasopressor policy, and I'm becoming more comfortable recommending short durations of pressors through peripheral lines. How about you, Nick? Did you find anything particularly interesting in this paper? Well, let's go. I love that you're on board with peripheral vasopressors. Um, To me, so... I get, you know, you mentioned that this is a how I do it article, but when you talk about kind of the figure that I think all of us are going to be stuck seeing this figure for like ever now in terms of, I think it's going to be, this is going to be the figure that everyone puts in terms of like the up titration and they recommend adding vasopressin and corticosteroids when the norepinephrine hits 15 mics per minute or 0.3 mics per kilo per minute. There's not a single data point or discussion as to why. I know it's anecdotal, and I know it's kind of what we all do, but I would like to even see a phrase to be like, hey, there's no evidence to guide what we do, but we're going to add it right here. So um, that was the only thing. And the other takeaway, man, methylene blue is having a moment here because it's also recommended here for consider methylene blue as a temporizing measure. So mm, methylene blue, uh, hot in the streets right now. Um, all right, so let's kind of stick in the hemodynamic septic shock world under the sepsis umbrella and take us to our next study. Yeah, for the next sepsis paper, we'll stay in the world of vasopressors and discuss a study led by pharmacists at the Cleveland Clinic titled Vasopressin Response and Clinical Trajectory in Septic Shock Patients, the Clinical Relevance and Prognosis of vasopressin responders compared to vasopressin non-responders is largely unknown. So the authors conducted a single-center retrospective observational cohort study evaluating the association of vasopressin response and the effect on clinical trajectory. They defined three clinical trajectories. Early death included patients who died within 14 days of admission. Chronic critical illness included patients 
in the ICU at day 14 with organ dysfunction. All other patients were classified as rapid recovery. More than 900 patients were included, and about 45% were vasopressin responders. Vasopressin responders had a lower rate of early death and a higher rate of rapid recovery. Vasopressin was independently associated with higher odds of better clinical trajectory and lower 28-day mortality. Based on this study, vasopressin response represents a novel prognostic factor for clinical trajectory for patients. This doesn't change how I would use vasopressin in my practice, but it does provide information to the team about the prognosis of the patient and potential need to change our current plan in non-responders. Yeah, what a really cool novel study design from uh, who, who I'm going to nickname Team Vasopressin, Gretchen Sasha and, and Seth Bauer. Um, now, I got to say, I we just talked about my thoughts on the vasopressor escalation guidance. I kept those in there because that was what I thought when I read the article. Now, interestingly, in this article, when they looked at all of these patients, when, they, at, when the uh, norepinephrine rate, when they added the vasopressin, it was about 0.3 mics per kilo per minute. So exactly what that other article recommended. So maybe that's just going to be the way it is and we'll never know why. Um, but it was interesting and I felt that I had to point that out for the listeners. Um, all right, Brent, close us out here. All right. The last paper in this subsection is a review article published in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Outcomes of Critical Illness. A large majority of critical care literature focuses on the front end of care for patients However, there is increasing awareness of complications and morbidities after critical illness recovery for patients, their family and caregivers, as well as healthcare providers. This review article does a great job summarizing the persistent morbidity that can impact so many patients after they leave the ICU, including a high degree of physical, cognitive, and psychological burden. They discuss risk factors and prevention strategies. Additionally, they call for the development of a continuum of care for patients post-ICU and for additional research in this area. Furthermore, they highlight the physical and psychological burden on healthcare providers, family members, and caregivers. This article is definitely worth saving, and as pharmacists, we can play a role in implementing the ABCDEF bundle to help reduce post-ICU morbidity. Additionally, they recommend establishing a longer time horizon to monitor patients after critical illness recovery to address some of these long-term complications. Love that you highlighted that that's the ABCDF bundle. That's exactly right. It, it highlights the importance of that and the growing need and importance for post-ICU clinics. And knowing that, um, the patient's journey isn't just done when they leave the ICU or even the hospital, that we're kind of much more aware of all the things that can happen afterwards um, and to be kind of involved with that. So really cool article. I completely agree. As we finished up our articles that got us a little bit under pressure with some sepsis, uh, we're going to transition and we're going to go ahead and let it bleed a little bit here. And we're going to talk articles that focus on heme. And we're going to start off with a study in JAMA surgery, and it's looking at the cost effectiveness of cryoprecipitate versus fibrinogen concentrate in cardiac surgery patients. Now, the fiber study, there was already a study published that showed that the fibrinogen concentrate was not inferior to cryoprecipitate, but it didn't look at all into cost. So this is a within trial kind of economic evaluation. So... The researchers found these trials to be cost-effective, but one big important point is this is a Canadian trial. So knowing all the differences in costs and things, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be as cost-effective in the U.S. versus Canada, but just something to keep in mind. I think some of us have maybe had to use the fibrinogen concentrate due to shortages with cryoprecipitate. So it's got some good info um, if and when you need it there as well. So kind of shifting from kind of those blood product components to talking about whole blood itself. And when Scott Dietrich was on the pro-coag rapid review episode, right, he mentioned his institution like mine uses whole blood for acute resuscitation in ED trauma patients. And a review from the American Journal of Critical Care um, did a pretty good job of kind of 
looking into and summarizing some of the evidence comparing whole blood versus blood component therapy on transfusion requirements in civilian patients. Right, there are tons and tons of data in the military and things, but looking specifically in our in civilian meaning like people that would come up in our EDs, right? So, um, a few takeaways: the level of evidence is not great. There were twelve studies, only one RCT, three more prospective. The other eight were all retrospective, and it's it's hard to make a definitive recommendation from the the data here to say if one is superior or not. Um, but it's an article to have a. Especially if your center is discussing or actually already has whole blood in your ED. I mean, I think another thing that's hard to recognize and review is, you know, if one component of your of your blood products you can't get, right? Well, then it can it can really cause problems with your cascade, right? So whole blood would kind of um, bypass that. Like if you had an issue getting, you know, cryo, right? Okay, well, whole blood's going to have some of that. So um, just something to keep in mind, but uh, an interesting. Um, and cool review to pop on that zip drive. And closing out the Let It Bleed section, we have Brian Erstad and Jeff Barletta bringing the heat from Arizona with this AJHP review, looking into the evidence behind VTE prophylaxis treatment regimens in obese trauma patients. Um, so these two give us tons of takeaways from the research we have, but they also do so much more. It's a really good, really good article, but they also, they dive in anti-10A monitoring and they give practical considerations and things to think about. So I want to highlight two points. I'm not going to give away the whole article, but I want to highlight two awesome points that they made. Number one is that extreme obese patients aren't well represented in these studies, Right. And those are probably the patients we need the most help with. Those are the patients that we're getting the questions of what dose to use, right? And then the other point, right, one of the things we've done in this population is using anti-10A monitoring. And they point out that the starting dose in most of those positive anti-10A studies is 30 mg Q12. And that a lot of them kind of settled in that 40 to 50 Q12 range. So would there be the same benefit if we were using the higher starting dose in obesity like we are now? Again, just things to think about. And there are just tons, tons more of those nuggets chalked in. So a must read for all, AJHP, get on it. Now, as we transition from our heme section, Brent, I think I got a fever. And the only prescription is some ID articles. So go ahead and take it away, hitting on some awesome infectious diseases articles from the month of March. Yeah, we're going to stay in the obesity realm and kick off our infectious disease section by discussing the 2022 update for antibiotic dosing in obese patients that was published by some awesome pharmacists and pharmacotherapy. This guidance paper was originally published in 2017 and included recommendations for 34 antimicrobials. This 2022 update includes updated recommendations for 41 antimicrobials using articles published from June 1st, 2017 through October 27th, 2022. And of the 41, eight are newly added. In this guidance paper, the authors provide an overview of different antibiotic classes and then really dig into the details of specific agents. They also include some very helpful tables. For example, table one provides dose recommendations, identifies some of the supporting evidence, and provides helpful comments to consider when dosing antimicrobials in obese patients. And Table 2 identifies specific dosing weights to use for a variety of our antibiotics. In reading this paper, I learned several clinical pearls on how to optimize antibiotic dosing in obesity, such as higher doses or extended infusions with beta-lactams, and proper dosing weight selection with drugs like daptomycin and vancomycin. Overall, this is an excellent thumb drive paper for our critically ill obese patients, which I've already referenced more than once in my practice since this paper was published. Really a lot of great information contained in this and some excellent work by some of our pharmacy colleagues. Yeah, you said it. Uh, you know, we're not going to go through and give you all of the recommendations and things. Um, you know, ideally, I'm going to be able to get one of them to come on the podcast and talk about everything that went into this article because it's awesome. Um, definitely a must save. 
Um, and it's going to help you answer some of those questions. Like Brent, you said, which, you know, do we use total body weight, adjusted body weight, ideal, do we cap, right? And they, they recommend some doses here that I don't think I necessarily would have instantly thought of. So really uh, just kudos I'm guessing almost everybody has the initial 2017 paper. Just pop this 2022 update right uh, with it because it's uh, really, really good. Let's give some, yeah, pharmacists from, it looks like uh, Stanford um, out in, in Cali. So shout out. That's an awesome, awesome job. Okay, Brent, keep us rolling in the ID section. Yeah, our next paper is the first of two that we'll discuss on oral step-down therapy for gram-negative bacteremia. And it was, again, written by some great pharmacists down here in Texas. Oral step-down therapy for bloodstream infections from Enterobacterales has been traditionally limited to fluoroquinolones and Bactrim. However, adverse effects of these agents and increasing resistance call for the evaluation of other options. The authors performed a multi-center retrospective cohort study of 397 patients and compared the rates of treatment failure for E. coli, Klebsiella, and Proteus bloodstream infections with oral beta-lactams compared to fluoroquinolones or Bactrim. They found no difference in the primary outcome of treatment failure. Further, they found no difference in oral antibiotic changes, C. diff development, or readmission rates. So overall, this was a very well-done retrospective study filling some knowledge gaps for us Of note, though, this study uh, included patients from 2016 through 2018. So patients received 14 days of oral antibiotics. Uh, Some of our most updated recommendations are for seven days of treatment. So it's unclear how or if this played a part in the results of this study. Current practice, my hospital does tend to favor fluoroquinolones for oral step-down therapy for this patient population. However, this study definitely increases my comfort in using oral beta-lactams for patients who are poor candidates for fluoroquinolones or are resistant to fluoroquinolones. And then the last important tidbit from this study is if you're going to select a oral beta-lactam is the importance of aggressive dosing and selecting an agent with high oral bioavailability. And I'll send it back to you, Nick, to discuss our next paper on this topic. Yeah, 500 Q12 of cephalexin is not the answer. If we're doing oral beta-lactames for our bacteremia's treatments, I love that you pointed that out there. Um, and you mentioned kind of the step-down treatment and looked at patients from 2016 to 2018. Um, I'm going to kind of piggyback off of that. need to shout out my awesome ID colleagues at IU Health and a previous resident for publishing on a similar but slightly different, right? The time frame was 2017 through 2020 and included more gram-negative bacteria included, um, but a similar thought, right? Comparing the use of oral beta-lactams to fluoroquinolones or sulfamethoxyl trimethoprim in those gram-negatives bacteremias from a urinary source. Just like the previous one, most common pathogen is E. coli. And in this kind of 210 patient retrospective study, they found no difference in hospital readmission. Now they did see a secondary outcome of an increase at readmissions for recurrent UTIs. So something to... I don't know, thought-provoking maybe, Um, but regardless, great job team for getting that published and through. Um, Cool two studies kind of piggybacking off each other. It's kind of an easy easy one too. Um, All right, so Brent, take us from the world of bacteremias to the world of pneumonia. Yeah, our next ID paper is a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at short versus long-course antibiotic therapy for ventilator-associated pneumonia, or VAT. Despite guideline recommendations for seven days of therapy for most patients, optimal duration is still debated, especially for non-lactose-fermenting gram-negative rods, such as Pseudomonas. A recent randomized control trial evaluated eight days versus 15 days for VAP caused by Pseudomonas, and the short course failed to meet non-inferiority criteria. So this systematic review and meta-analysis compared a short course, which was eight days or less, to a long course, which was 10 to 15 days of antibiotic therapy in VAP to assess the rates of relapse and recurrence. The authors included five randomized control trials, and there was no significant difference in relapse and recurrence rates between the groups. Additionally, there was no significant difference in mortality, ICU length of stay, or mechanical ventilation duration. 
Also, importantly, all of these results held true when limiting to non-lactose fermenting gram-negative rods. In my current practice, I often see our teams uh, determine antibiotic duration based on some patient-specific factors and their uh, clinical status. Although the results of this meta-analysis help support shorter antibiotic courses in patients who achieve significant clinical improvement. However, I would say more data is probably needed to recommend short courses routinely for VAP based on the results of the individual trials that are included in this analysis. So for our last ID paper, I'll hand it back to you, Nick, to discuss the use of steroids in community-acquired pneumonia. Yeah, one point on that VAP study. Boy, those confidence intervals were really close. And if those are just a couple points different, they're pretty in favor. It would be uh, in favor of a long course there. So you're right. Hard to interpret. Um, I think for those nastier bugs, I still kind of make the argument for a little longer course. Um, but all right, closing us out, you mentioned looking at steroids in caps. So this is a systematic review, meta-analysis, and a randomized controlled trial meta-regression. Now, what is a meta-regression, you ask? It is a meta-analysis that uses regression analysis to compare findings from multiple studies to adjust for the effects of covariates. What does that mean? I feel like I just read a, a terms and agreement, right? It, it aims to reconcile conflicting studies. So in these studies, the doses of the corticosteroids are all different. Sometimes the drugs are completely different. So it's going to help to explore the association between corticosteroid dose and duration. Okay, now we're back. So this was published in CHEST, and it looked at the effect of corticosteroids on mortality and clinical cure. So seven trials were included and they found that corticosteroids were associated with a reduced need for mechanical ventilation. Now, they included studies through June 2022. So they found these effects without the really positive findings of the Cape Cod trial showing big benefits of corticosteroids. And if you don't know what I'm talking about there, go to the Rapid Reaction episode. Carolyn McGee-Bell and I talk and go into detail about that Cape Cod trial. Um, but I think this is more evidence kind of supporting the use of corticosteroids in CAP. And I think now the question is, what's our dose and what's our agent? But I think we're kind of getting a lot of data that, the, that um, you know, we might be there. We might need to start, you know, using this and the evidence might finally kind of um, be there to support that. So interesting. And we made it, and as always, we're closing out with the pharmacist featured section at the front of the fridge. Now, reminder, this is the last month that I'm picking these pharmacist articles. So in April, we're going to do some polls, and we're going to make sure that, that you all, the listeners, that we're talking about the articles you want. So um, on the social medias, Twitter and Instagram, at Pharmacy to Dose, T.O. to Dose, we'll have some polls and things. Keep an eye out um, because we're going to try to get some, and I want to hear from you all, make sure I'm talking about the articles you want to hear. Now, we're going to be talking about, uh, briefly, four articles in the front of the fridge here. And batting leadoff in the front of the fridge is a, is a multi-center retrospective study from Arizona that's evaluating the correlation between APTTs and TAG R-time values in adult ECMO patients anticoagulated with bivalirudin. That was published in Pharmacotherapy, and they analyzed results from 104 patients, and they actually found a moderate correlation between the tag R time and the APTT. But the authors also noted that 42% of the time when someone had a therapeutic APTT, the tag R time showed that they were either sub or supra therapeutic according to their R time. So um, I think it's um, a really, really useful study because it's a pragmatic trial, right? They mentioned that they use APTTs to monitor uh, patients that are getting bivalirudin, the ECMO patients, but then the, they'll also order tags, right, on these patients. This is my experience as well. So the thing that they noted is there's about 60% agreement, but it also showed that there was no correlation with those other tag parameters. So I think it's useful to know what findings that we can look at. And, you know, we may need to do it on a little case-by-case -case basis here, but I think it's 
it's helpful information to know that maybe we don't need to look at all those other pieces of the tag findings as well. So uh, a really awesome study uh, with tons of pharmacists, um, names you'll recognize. So really, really uh, great study there. Now, in last month's literature review series, we discussed an ED trial looking at calcium use when treating AFib with RVR with the calcium channel blocker in the ED. Now, one thing that Rhea and I noted was that when patients had a lower systolic blood pressure, those patients received a lower mean diltiazem dose. Now, we kind of thought, hey, that makes sense. You're going to be worried about hypotension. But these pharmacist authors took it a step further from Illinois, and they actually published an article in the Annals of Emergency Medicine looking into this exact thing. So this retrospective study evaluated the effect of diltiazem dose on the effective rate control. They defined rate control as getting a heart rate in the double digits, less than 100, within 30 minutes of treatment. So we all know the weight-based recommended dose is 0.25 mg per kg, and so they created three categories, low, weight-based, and high. And the weight-based group had a significantly higher rate of achieving rate control, um, almost double the other groups, but only about 54% of patients. So keep that in mind that even in this, when you were doing this, it only worked about 50-50% of the time. Now, they saw no increase in adverse effects. Big thing, right? No difference in blood pressure, the thing we're thinking about. So... This is retrospective, but kind of something to maybe keep in mind when, when you're discussing which diltiazem dose you might recommend in treating AFib with RVR in the ED. Now, sticking with the ED theme, um, this multidisciplinary study, including pharmacist authors from Atlanta, uh, retrospectively analyzed the effect on that initial nitroglycerin infusion rate on blood pressure and key safety outcomes in the first hour of SCAPE treatment. Now, remember, SCAPE is sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema, and it's an emergency, right? And one of the big points of emphasis is you want to use higher doses of nitroglycerin to get the big dilation. And so this article in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine uh, looked at that, and these researchers analyzed the, uh, the initial effect of nitroglycerin on clinical outcomes in 41 patients. Now, they define higher doses as greater than 100 mics per minute. Um, and when they go through all the analyses, it confirmed that the higher dose significantly led to faster blood pressure control. And so I think we've had a lot of trials that have showed us the benefits of high dose. I think this is one of the first, if not the first, that actually compares low to high in the management of SCAPE. So a really cool article, um, and uh, something, it's always nice when we're able to confirm the things that make sense theoretically and things like that. All right. And then closing out the pharmacist featured articles is, of course, the pharmacist crew from Mayo Clinic doing big things as always. Uh, this is an awesome research study. And it's looking at peri-intubation hypotension and looking at the influence of vasopressor selection on the incidence of hypotension. So basically... They were researching to figure out, is the presser that you use before or right after intubation, does that affect how well you control your blood pressure, right? Is there a mechanism, you know, while you're doing this that one might be better than another? So this multi-center retrospective study, they had, they had 105 patients and they matched them to three treatment groups. So they got a norepinephrine infusion, push-dose phenylephrine, or both. They got a push-dose phenylephrine followed by an infusion. And the patients, they had to be receiving these either 30 minutes prior to or 30 minutes post-intubation. Those were the patients that they included. And ultimately, they found no difference in either management strategy uh, on the kind of primary composite outcome of bradycardia, hypotension, cardiac arrest, and death. And they looked at it two hours post-vasopressor initiation. But what stands out to me, 86% of patients experienced the primary outcome. So Almost everyone experienced some sort of issue, whether it was bradycardia, hypotension. That's a big number. Now, I'm not saying that like um, pointing out, you know, things that are wrong. I'm saying this more that like we got to keep this in mind when when we're um, treating patients in the ED. They just got intubated. We got to keep our, our eyes alert um, and make sure that we're able to prevent that um, post-intubation hypotension or adverse effects because if we stay ahead of it typically it's something that you can so something to keep in mind um, and ultimately it kind of showed that you can use whatever kind of presser you you like it doesn't show much difference between those two um, and then closing out with the fun article of the month so 
when I work nights, I always said there are two rules. There's no yawning before midnight, no judgments on caffeine. So when I saw the title, Acute Effects of Coffee Consumption on Health Among Ambulatory Adults in New England Journal of Medicine, I'm not going to lie, I got nervous. Uh-oh, what, what is this going to tell me I need to do about coffee? But in 100 patients, this prospective randomized crossover trial showed no difference in the number of daily premature atrial contractions. Sleep, glucose, steps, they all remain the same. So keep drinking that beautiful, delicious coffee bean, friends, because it has no difference in your rate of premature atrial contractions. I know, what an important, and I, this is a fun article. It might be the most important one out of all of these, right? Because it's something that we all use every day. But whew, what a great episode, Brent. Huge thanks. Um, what an awesome job reviewing the studies for the listeners, giving tips, tricks, pearls. Reminder, Brent is on Twitter, at BTuckFarmD. Thanks again, Brent. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Nick. It was my pleasure to be able to join you and to talk about some of our new literature from back in March. Thanks again to Brent. And uh, another reminder... We're going to be voting on these articles next month, so um, follow me on the socials and be thinking of who you're going to want to nominate for award season. It's going to be coming mid to end of May when we're going to really get into that. Um, so reach out uh, at pharmacy to dose, to dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. The reference list with all the articles we discussed and even some of the ones that we just briefly mentioned as we were going into the March articles, they'll be featured in that podcast episode description as well as on the website pharmacytodose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps.